thing is moving so fast. You can outfly it if you're flying directly away from it. But if you're if if it's a lateral move, you're trying to beat it to a certain point. You know, it's just not going to happen. Hey, you're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we get to travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back, folks, for episode 22 from wherever you are in the world today. Our repeating theme for show guests is this idea of being a, you know, being a pilot versus being a professional aviator. Uh, it's just not the idea of you know, flying a helicopter from A to B, but about the, the job or the outcome that you're trying to achieve, whether it's supporting troops or firefighters on the ground, as mentioned by Gordy in a recent episode, you know, or getting people to safely work on an oil rig or nailing that right position for the, the film or the photo job. So this week I've got a professionalism quote to share with you, and it goes like this. An amateur practices until he can do a thing right, a professional until he can't do it wrong. That's by Francis Mayer. Okay, on a personal note, so I've done my aviation medical is done and dusted for another year uh, in this last week, so a nice easy one this year, no ECG or a blood test involved. And my new Part 61 Castle license has come through last week. So for those overseas, we've had a uh, change of uh, regulations here in uh, Australia and uh, as a result in a new type of license come through. So it was a nine-week uh, turnaround. You might remember an early episode when I was talking about um, at last year in November about doing the uh, instructor renewal for that. So that seems to be about par for the course. So now I'm going to go through and decipher all the new abbreviations and actually see what I've ended up on the uh, on the new license. Interesting thing to note is on, on the last page, they've they've actually removed the photo identification from the license. So now there's an, an added requirement that you've actually got to carry another form of photo ID with you anytime you're exercising the, the privilege of your, your pilot license. The World Helicopter Day will be on 16th of August 2015. So if you want to get some publicity for your company by holding a public open day, then you can get your event listed on worldhelicopterday.com. The website is a work on progress, but very soon there'll be a press release template that you can download, edit with your company name and your details, and closer to the date, we are sending that out to your local media outlets. The whole idea here is to you know generate some buzz and coverage for the work that we all do, and the machines we fly, and the benefit we bring to our local communities as well. So if you want to get involved in World Helicopter Day as a volunteer helping out on the website and social media, then you can shoot me an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. And again, if you want to hold an open day with your business to tie in and get that coverage and get some exposure, then head over to worldhelicopterday.com for the details. In today's show, we get a taste of what flying in Iraq is like, and more specifically, flying the, the Cairo Warrior. So Robert Mills is a, a veteran of two tours of Iraq uh, with the US Army. He kept a journal while he was on his deployments and has recently published that as a book called Black Death 23 that, as they say, you can get from all good bookstores. It's a pretty good insight into the day-to-day life of a Army pilot in a recent conflict, and about a part of the world that you know is again now uh, heavily featured in the news media in recording this in early 2015. So Robert gives us a heads up on the flying conditions you can expect in Iraq and 
some of the background that goes into his book. Robert Mills, look, thank you for giving up the time. And, you know, I've obviously read your book, uh, Black Death 23, and it's a you know, your, uh, your journal writings as you went through Iraq on rotations on uh, Kiowa uh, with the U.S. Army. So a great book. And uh, look, thanks for having a time chat. Sure. Yeah, let's roll. Excellent. Okay, so heaps of things we'll spoke before we hit record that, um, you know, we'll leave people to go read the book and we'll talk about some of the events in it, but we won't rehash it. But it will mainly be talking about Iraq and I guess flying in, in the Middle East and, and conditions like that. But let's um, set the scene. So, you were working in IT before you actually joined up and became a pilot. So can you just quickly talk about you know that decision to, to join up and what it was like going through pilot training? Oh, sure. Yeah, so I was a civilian. I, I had a, basically a, uh, an electronics-type job prior to the military, and um, that position was under fire, I guess, from the, from the Y2K stand-down after everything was fine. And, you know, I, I got to thinking about, hey, you know, what do I really want to do here? Do I, do I want to continue this path or do I want to do something, you know, a little more exciting? And I had always wanted to fly helicopters. And, and what young man doesn't want to go fly a helicopter, particularly in the military or in, in a combat scenario? So I checked into the program and found out it was possible, you know, through some channels and military connections. And my brother, who had told me about the program through the Army, and so I went, signed up for that program, and pretty much went through their training process, which was a fairly long process. It's it, nothing's easy in the military, I don't think. They, they run you through your regiment pretty good, but uh, start to finish with a few bubbles, there was there was a lot of wait periods based on the amount of folks that they were the pilots that they were training and sitting through the course, but. If you went through without any hesitations in the courses, you could finish in about 15 months. Basic training for warrant officer school right into flight school, uh, you'd finish in probably 15, maybe 18 months. And my process ended out being about 24 months. Yeah, it's a, a while from so, way to go. Uh, but, you, but you did pretty good on course and you chose Kiowa. What, what if, why'd you go with Kiowa for? What were the other options and what was your thought process with choosing uh, Kiowa? Uh, the selection for the, for the Kiowa came later in, during the training. I got down to the point of flying uh, basic combat skills. And at that point, I'm looking at the, at the different airframes and the mission of the Kiowa just really stood out to me to go out and to do uh, reconnaissance, you know, close combat support for troops, uh, recon, you know, all the different missions that you do in the Kyle security all appealed to me where, you know, Blackhawks, they do uh, have some combat integration, but most of the time you're in air taxi moving things around pieces, park people and uh, the Apache mission. Well, pretty sexy. It's a nice aircraft. It's a powerful aircraft. Just didn't appeal to me like the um, Kiowa did. And, you know, the Kiowa was, like, I guess, it's a little more primitive than, than what the, the Apache is. So, um, you know, it's, it's just a different mission. And I, I really like the, the uh, mission of the Kiowa. And still to this day, I'm glad I chose that and pretty happy about flying it. 
And look, as we record this, I'm actually out of the airfield. I normally do this from home. And out the window, there's a uh, uh, 206 doing mosquito spraying. For folks, like, you know, if you, if you look at a modern car warrior, you know, they've added lots and lots of stuff over the years. And, you know, it looks like a war machine, even if it is sort of based on a, on a light helicopter. Can you walk folks just quickly through, you know, the airframe and what's on it? And I guess compare it to a, a 206, which most people might be familiar with. Okay. There's some, some pretty basic differences. So looking at it, it's not, it doesn't look a whole lot different. It's a little bit wider. Max gross on, on the aircraft is 5,200 pounds. And it's a four-bladed articulated rotor system, which is much smoother with a, a, a SCAF system, which really stabilizes the airframe. Built mainly for stationary scouting with the site. And without that, I think your site would probably have quite a bit of movement in it so it's built so that you can hover rock solid for a long period of time it's outfitted with uh, quite a bit of armament it, you can load 275 uh, rockets on it 50 cal hellfire and when i went through training it, it actually still had the air-to-air stingers on it so we never used those we never loaded any we never took any but we were trained on them and uh, it just wasn't part of the mission that we were flying, so we didn't use any of them. The uh, length of it, uh, tip to tail is around 40 feet, 42, uh, width-wise so at the widest points right at 35 feet. And uh, engine setup in it, is it a pretty standard uh, civilian sort of 206 engine, or is it a uh, up-modded? What's the difference there? It's actually underpowered compared to the 407. I think that's the most comparable airframe. And the shaft horsepower is lower. The limits are a little bit lower. It's You fly this thing at max gross weight pretty much all the time. So if you want a power management pilot, get a 58 guy, the Kyle guy, because when we pick that thing up, it's in the yellow all the time. <laughs> so it, it, it's a little... It's a little comical. I mean, once you get it moving, you get it through ETL, it's probably one of the most maneuverable aircraft and agile aircraft out there. But it just getting it to that point, you know, it can be challenging, mostly if you got a lot of crosswind or something like that. So uh, in, in a mission in Iraq, that wasn't a factor. But if you get into a mission, you know, similar to the Vietnam era, we had a lot of trees and a lot of terrain that you're hovering behind that could become a, a major factor for station time and air time yeah just to, to balance the load out for it and my closest experience uh, with Kiowa would be in the australian Kiowa, and essentially you know it, it's almost a straight uh, 206 with a bunch of radios on board uh, but very little in the way of any extra equipment and still got the the back seats in it so that's what the thing i noticed when i look at the Kiowa warrior you know, you get the two front seats, but you never actually see in the back. So, so what's directly behind the pilot seats? What's in the in the actual cabin? Okay, so if you open up the two aft doors, and the, the doors are still there, they're the same, they just don't have windows in them. You open those up, it's full of boxes. It's full of control center, basically. Modules that control the armament system to power boxes, power supplies for the site. Uh, the site, the mass mounted site on top of the rotor runs off of the AC power instead of the DC power. So all of those control boxes are in there. And then you have two large CPUs or main CPUs for the avionics. And that run the MFDs up in the dash 
you got two basically two MFDs that are redundant systems. Pretty much pull up everything on either one of those screens in case one were to be shot out or one were to fail. No dramas, and we'll we'll jump back in about um, I guess the Kaiwa airframe as we go through. Before we get to Iraq, I was just going to ask one more question about the the US system with the setup uh-huh. between the different you got your um, you got your warrant officer stream and, and the officer stream. The officer guys going through and doing their pilot training. Do they do it? Is it all at the one school, or are you separated during training? How's the dynamic there work? From the time that you start your flight school, all of those guys are together. You basically get pushed through these classes as one class. Now, the reporting was a little different when I went through. They had the officers separated from the warrant officers, the commission guys. They were belonged to one company. We belonged to another. That has changed since then. They're, I think it's all Delta Company now is what they refer to. It used to be Bravo and Delta. And I believe it's all one company now. So that's a slight difference from when I went through. A uh, number of students at a time, you're looking at around 1,000 to 1,100 when I went through. That's, a, that's about what they had. Now, that's all changing as we speak. This is all molding into a new process because they're changing the airframes out. And they're changing, you've probably seen a lot of the news that the uh, TH-67 and 206s are going away. So those will all become um, Lakotas and 145s. Yeah, the scale is um, yeah, it's pretty crazy when you look at the, the numbers you guys got going through. And that comes on the next thing too is uh, like you actually deployed uh, to Iraq still with you know I guess some initial unit training and things like that to go. And my understanding is you know the army units just pick up as a whole unit and go across in deployments, whereas definitely the Australian experience is you know detachments will go across and. Uh, you will be completely trained up before you'd, you'd set foot in, in a country. So how many hours did you deploy with? How many hours flying it did you have before you actually uh, set foot in Iraq? So when I got there, I had around, I think it was about 85 hours, 85 flight hours right at it, because you, you're basically going to get about 60 in primary instruments, and then you're going to go to your, you're going to have BCS, which is, uh, they kind of cut that, piece out now and you go directly to your air well you, you still do a short stint of uh, low level nav but you're not the pilot you're the navigator so I don't think they're logging any time during that time because you're really not on the sticks at all so once you get your airframe then you're logging time in an airframe I don't know what it is now but that course when, when I was in my APC was about 8 weeks so for about 8 weeks we're logging a good hour and a half a day for five days a week. So that takes me up to, you know, 85, 90 hours, something like that when I get there. But still very junior, no practical experience at all. All we had was book knowledge. And that's a little nerve-wracking. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, because, you know, they look at you know, a basic uh, CPL course and where the guys are at at 85 hours. And I know it's difficult to sort of compare army training to, you know, what you get at a, a small airfield. But, yeah, like, how did that feel flying in country and learning not only the, the helicopter side of things, but all the military side? How far behind the aircraft did you feel in those first few flights in, in Iraq? You know, it wasn't terrible. I think the worst part of it is the nervousness building up to it. Once you get in there and you start doing your thing and, you know, you're doing what you're trained to do, you don't really realize you're behind the aircraft until you're behind the aircraft, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yep. So when, 
when you get into a tense situation, that's when experience would really uh, need to kick in and you find yourself in a situation that you need to think fast, do what you're told, you know, do what you've been taught and, and do it quickly and efficiently and time your radio calls. We were using four radios. Uh, we're talking aircraft to aircraft, aircraft to ground and uh, pilot to pilot, right seater to right seater, left seater to left seater, you know, so there's a lot of radio chatter, not to mention the chatter from our aircraft or team back to the uh, tactical operations center. So there's a lot of things going on, but it's a little intimidating when you, when you first get in there, get into your first real tense situation, but you know, truthful enough, they always said, you know, your experience or your training will kick in and it'll be fine. And most of the time that was the case. And it was really not as bad as what I expected it to be. Yeah, no, it's just a really different way of, of doing it. And I guess like, it doesn't matter if you're doing logging or SAR or, um, you know, fighting a where like you've got the, the aircraft flying, like getting the aircraft from A to B, but then you've got the whole other side of actually doing the job. And uh, yeah, that's, especially, especially in a Kiowa, fighting a Kiowa, there's a lot going on. So uh, that's really interesting. But okay, well, let's talk about Iraq, uh, Robert. If you can give us a bit of a like an, an in-country brief, if we're, you know, if someone was going to pick up a job in Iraq and, and head over and, and, and do a helicopter uh, flying job, can you talk about, you know, what you'd warn the man about and, and talk a bit about the, uh, the country in terms of flying conditions? Sure. Depending on what time you were to go over there, it's hot. I mean, it's extremely hot. So just, you might as well just plan on uh, drinking a lot of water, sweating a lot, and taking a lot of showers if, if the facilities present themselves, because that's just the way it is. It's, it's just extremely hot. You're probably going to lose quite a bit of water, body, body weight through the heat, unless you're lucky enough to get a, uh, an aircraft that's got a cooling system built on it. But yeah, conditioning. I think uh, physical conditioning is a, a key part of survival and healthy survival. So you don't get sick, don't get headaches, don't get dehydrated, lose too much salt, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we went in both cases and staged in Kuwait for two weeks prior to moving north. Kuwait is much hotter than Iraq. So if you're going to be in Kuwait and, and stage there, same thing. I mean, we saw temperatures 130, 135 degrees. Crazy. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, you, and it doesn't. If you said 135 degrees, you may not believe that because you just it doesn't quite feel that hot because it's it's very dry. But when you got the thermometer telling you right there that it's hot, you know, you, <laughs> obviously you got the picture. So. Anyway, so physical conditioning, eating right, sleeping right, making sure that uh, you keep all that as much at bay as possible. I think that is the key to surviving and operating in that kind of weather, in that kind of heat. In the wintertime, it's cold. I mean, it's the desert, but it gets pretty cold. And you'll have days that it, you'll have temperature swings 50, 60 degrees because it's cold at night and warmer in the day. In the Kiowa, we flew with no doors at all, at all times, winter, summer. So in the winter time, or yeah, in the winter time when it was really cold, we just wore fleece over our flight suits. We had Nomex fleece that we wore to stay warm. And if you were a good pilot and kept the aircraft and trim, 
the aircraft heater would still heat the cockpit that with that barrier of air going down by the door. And as long as you stayed in trim, the cockpit stayed warm. Well, there's, so, a, there's an incentive uh, incentive there to uh, to keep in balance. Yes. So, what did you do for water in the, the cockpit? Did you have like a camelback arrangement? Did you have bottles? Uh, how did you actually keep uh, hydrated in the uh, cockpit during summer? You know, I, I've tried I tried multiple things. The best process that I found was to take a bottle of water, freeze it overnight, and so we would just put liters, and they come in liters overseas. So we would put liters of, of water in the freezer, and then every time you pull one out to go on a mission or two out you stick one in and our fuel points uh, pretty much had water at all the fuel points. So we would take one or two bottles of water, uh, take a thick sock, just a, like a thigh high sock and put that up over that little, that liter of water and it's frozen solid. And you can, you could actually set it up on the, on the glare screen, you, even in direct sunlight and it would not unfreeze faster than you could drink it. So, you you drink it and it, there would still be ice in there. We'd have to literally roll the sock down so that the sun could melt some of it down so we could drink it. And without the sock in the hot hot of the day, that would be gone. And I mean, it's it would be melted in 20 minutes if it was solid ice. You melted in 20 minutes, but with that with that sock on there, it would stay for a good hour hour and a half. There you go, well, there you go, folks. Um, you've picked up a tip already because yeah, I haven't come across that one before, but it sounds like that would work. And the, you know, I did. I we tried the camelbacks too, but and we we would hang them on the back of the seat, and then just drape the uh, the, the uh, drinking straw over our shoulder. That way, you got it right there all the time. The bad thing is, it heats up so quick, and if you haven't drank all the water in that thing in thirty minutes. It's going to be like drinking bath water it's that quick. So the sock insulation method is probably the most effective, and you could actually control how fast the ice would melt in that bottle. By adjusting the sock. Awesome. That's it. All right, what about um, terrain-wise? Like, you know, when I picture, I guess, you know, thinking Afghanistan versus Iraq, you know, I think Afghanistan, big mountains and uh, and HDA issues and things like that, and I think of Iraq as, as flat. Was that pretty much the case? That's fair. Yeah, that's fairly accurate. Now, if you, the further north you get, there is some terrain relief. There's always going to be areas of palm trees and things like that around the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Uh, so there are some things, you know, that might provide some, some terrain relief or cover if you're flying and being shot at, that kind of thing. Many times it was coming from those palm groves, so you just wanted to get out of there. But uh, the other thing is if you get up north and, and you know, you get north of Baghdad, you, you're going to find a lot of cliffs, mountains, some really uh, good terrain relief. Up, up near Talifar in the northwestern portion of the country, you're, you're sitting at a field elevation of, uh, I think, roughly 1,000 feet. It's right at 1,000 in this cell. And then you have uh, Sindra Mountain that is east-west. It goes from just off the north side of Talfar over to the Syrian border. And that mountain is right at 3,000 feet on the pinnacle. So, you know, you could get some, you could get some temperature relief if you, you had a recon mission up on the top of that rascal. Uh, you dropped a few degrees. Uh, <laughs> it was a, 
it was a relief to fly and it was something different and something fun but we had a retrain site on the very top of that mountain when we were up there operating so we'd go up there and we'd drop things off pick things up and uh, practice pinnacle approaches how much cargo could you actually uh, carry it doesn't sound like there's that much room other than other than the front seats for actually carrying stuff very yeah very little very little but if if they needed a part or if they needed new fills for the radio or something like that, that was, you know, we could fly up there in a matter of 20 some minutes versus trucking it. And the dangers of being on the ground and IEDs and all that for a three hour drive that it took because you had to drive up that switchback road. You know, that was, that was ideal if we just flew it up there to them. So as long as it was small though, we were good. Is there a hook on the um, car? No, not per se. They, they make a system for it. We never used it. Uh, they used to have the old prime chance mission that they used to do over water years ago in the, in the late 80s. They had uh, caving ladders on them at one point um, that they'd attach. And if they had to pick somebody up, they had a little ladder that's pulled out and stuff that was kind of neat. But we never used them, and I never trained with them. I think that was a specialty mission from years ago. All right, and in the book you talk about you know the fact you're basically flying sub 200 feet over the the build up areas. Uh, what's the the build up areas? And again, I know it's different. You know, some photos you include too, so you know photos of the, the more rural sort of um, buildings. But in the build up areas, is it you know two story buildings, three story? What's the sort of predominant um, landscape there? Most of those buildings are going to be single or, or two story. They had some in the, in the city. You know, if you go into Missoula or into Talifar, there are buildings that were five, six stories and some larger than that, some a little higher than that, some very large moss and, and, and things. But typically, you're, you're looking at homes and they're one to two stories. All right, when you're flying yeah. that, that low over the houses, like, you know, how, how low are you getting on some of those missions? Typically, if you're over that built-up area, you've got a leading trail bird and trail birds going to fly high to be in a position of suppression in case the lead bird takes fire. But the low bird's going to be flying at around 50, 60 feet, roughly, sometimes up to 100, just depending on... I mean, you want to alter that. You want to change it up, and you don't want to fly anything that's predictable. So you would change that, and, you know, one time you fly over the train, you might be at 50 feet, and the next time you might be at 100. Maybe you're at 150, Yeah. You really wanted to mix it up, though, so you weren't predictable. Is there much of a wire and and antenna thread over there? There are quite a few antennas. They had a lot of stick-up antennas, and I talked a little bit in the book about kites. They would fly these kites off their house and tie them off, and and the wind in certain seasons may blow for days. They might fly, a kite might fly for 10 days, you know, and you come back and realize you've got kite string there because... They'll, they'll fly them off their house at, you know, two, three hundred foot in the air. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't because it's a small kite, you know. But it never really hurt anything. It was just kite string and just break it. And you might find it wrapped around your, your pitch change links on your swash plate. Okay, that's a pretty unique threat. <laughs> uh, that's <different>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, just referencing some of the things looking at the notes here from from the book is, um, you know, the, the dust storms rolling through and and talking about you know have to trying to to beat it into a FOV or or out, 
Yeah, well, yeah. Talk, can you talk through, I guess, you're not only the dust storms, but just the general actually landing. You know, Afghanistan's famous for you know uh, dusting out and branding out when the guys are coming in. But yeah, can you talk about the dust in Iraq? I can. Yeah, the uh, I, I was caught in two situations during missions where we literally had to either divert or leave the area because uh, dust storms were overtaking it. One of them, you know, we were coming back and they moved so fast. We were trying to beat it back to the fob and there's just no way. The thing is moving so fast. You can outfly it if you're flying directly away from it. But if you're, if, if it's a lateral move, and you're trying to beat it to a certain point, you know, it's just not going to happen. And it's literally just like you see, you know, on some of the movies, it's just a wall of dirt, literally a wall of dirt, probably from a, a microburst from a storm far, far, far away that's picked up that dust on the on the desert floor and just kept building and building and building this wall of dirt. So, so how high uh, would it be? Oh, it's it's thousands of feet. I mean, I don't think you could ever get over it in a helicopter, or at least the, the area that we flew anyway. I don't think you could climb fast enough because it, they, they move so fast. Your climb rate, I don't think you'd ever get up high enough, quick enough. Um, and sometimes it would take two days for it to settle. Sometimes it settled quick. Sometimes it was, you know, only a few hours. But if that wind, if that light wind keeps you blowing, it'll just keep that dust in the air. And it may last. You may have like an orange landscape for a full day or two. And what does it do to the machines as far as, you know, maintenance and engine and blades? You know, we had uh, engine barrier filters or uh, inlet barrier filters on, is the terminology used on the Kylo, but they work very efficiently. It's an oiled filter that catches that stuff coming through. We have an indicator system inside that would you would begin by flickering, you know, and, and basically says, hey, this filter is close to bypass. You know, it's getting to that pressure point. But it gave you plenty of time that uh, if you had to uh, finish your mission and get back, uh, normally it wouldn't even be an issue. I didn't really see that much of a degradation in performance you know, over time. I don't know if it's because our maintenance cycles were high enough that it really didn't affect us. But I'm sure it affected some. I just didn't see a noticeable degradation in either the blades. I mean, you could see it in the blades because it would wear off the black paint and they'd have to repaint them. But it was nothing where you said, man, this, you know, we're losing 50% off this engine because of the dust. There's nothing like that. How often are you doing uh, compressor rinses? You know, thinking back to the good old days, I'm trying to remember how many hours it was, but it seemed like they were doing compressor uh, rinses like every maybe it's every 50 hours i'm guessing because i can't remember a lot of times the crew chiefs took care of it we didn't deal with it a lot of times it was just taken care of for us so little details start slipping away <laughs> that's fair enough but uh <laughs> something I, I love and, and i won't just say military but anyone who's had to move aircraft around from uh country to country but especially out of war zones is the the cleanup afterwards and you talk about the book you know that the cleanup yeah. process and and you know, again we've got our quarantine inspection to get back in australia is you know very difficult but yeah as i was reading that yeah i've been exactly that same situation and sitting there you know pulling aircraft apart and cleaning it down to get them inspected <laughs> so that seems like a pretty common thing for folks all over the world it is and, and you know it's frustrating 
because when you get out there, you, you're really just you're ready to go home at this point. Uh, and that's real. That's your real motivation to get this thing right because you're ready to leave. And it's 120 degrees, 130 degrees in the sun on this ramp. And you're out there with a uh, shop vac trying to vacuum every grain of dirt out of this thing, you know. And my goodness, it's like they come around, yeah, clean that, clean this, but every crack and cranny. And I just can't even express how frustrating it is. But we eventually got them all clean. And two guys would team up on a bird and it would take hours for two guys to do one aircraft. But we did it, and we got out of there a little quicker. You know, the second time we did that process seemed like it went a whole lot quicker, and I don't know if it was because the inspectors weren't as critical or if we were just better at it, but it did go. I think we we spent a full day less cleaning more aircraft on the second go-around. I must admit, it's definitely not my proudest hour, but um, yeah, we were coming out of Indonesia and we were there with uh, New Zealand Iroquois. I flew into a pad as they were cleaning up to go home and uh, yeah, managed to put some dust through there. They were halfway through machines and uh, almost caused an international incident there, so that wasn't appreciated. But uh, you live and learn for those sorts of things. But uh, when you're flying around, what, what sort of flight gear? So on an average mission, uh, I don't know if, if you want to tackle this one first or if you want to talk about it, an average day uh, when you were stationed over there. But, uh, yeah, what, what were you physically stepping into the aircraft with as far as all the gear you'd take on board with you? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll just start with the day because that kind of leads right up to the mission. Your typical day, uh, work day, is a 12-hour work day, basically. Uh, you get up. You're going to go eat breakfast, or do, and this is considering this is a day mission, of course. But you'll go eat, uh, meet your team uh, back at the command post, link up with them as a team, then you'll go to the tactical operations center, uh, get your mission briefing for the day. Uh, you'll be briefed on the latest intelligence, and then sent out for your mission. At that point, you go do a team brief on your mission. You'll have an air mission commander that leads the leads the mission. You'll talk about all kinds of things through the, as you can imagine. But uh, go out, pre-flight your aircraft, go wait for your launch time or launch, depending on what your mission is and where. Uh, it's all different. It's always a different time. So uh, sometimes you would have uh, recon security. You're basically looking at the main routes, looking for. Uh, anything suspicious, recon in a particular area. Something may have been called in over the past 24 hours and suspicious activity, something like that. You'll go to that grid, uh, do some recon, look at, you know, look for anything suspicious, or you might do it as you're coming down the route looking at other things. It's however the team wanted to execute that particular uh, task based on uh, their knowledge of the mission area. So if you had named missions, a named mission was a mission that was a deliberate mission to um, maybe go snatch and grab somebody that they've been tracking or looking for. That would come as a priority over your daily mission. So you would base your routine missions off of the timeline for the uh, named mission. So you would make sure that that was your priority, set those, you'd fly anywhere from hour to two hours on a bag of gas, 
come back, typically it's right at two hours, run through a bag of gas, come back to the farm, you know, jump out, get your, your fuelers, come out and hop fuel you, uh, rearm you if you need an armament, go um, get some water, replenish your, your water, take a leak, jump back in, take back off again for the next two hours. Most of the time you're flying around between four, four and a half hours a day, unless you had a long, long day or extended missions or uh, missions that came up that, that were not planned until you got near. Uh, they might hit you with something like that. It might extend your day out five, six hours, something, you know, but typically you're right around four or four and a half hours. And you come back, shut down, post flights your birds, debrief the intelligence group, uh, do a debrief with your team, and then depending on how the mission set went or, or what the teams were, you know, uh, scheduled like, you could be on what they call QRF or quick reaction force for the remainder of your 12 hours, uh, responding to troops in contact or uh, missions that name missions that other uh, teams that were up flying couldn't service. So that's a typical day. And then by the time you're done with all that, you've burned up most of your 12 to 14 hours and you're ready to hit the sack or wind down for a little bit and, and then hit the sack. Okay. And um, the, the gear you, you'd actually uh, depart with? So as you walk out to the aircraft, what would you be grabbing out with you? Okay. Yeah, I failed to cover that. I mean, I felt like a pack mule every time we went out there. You know, we had these little, we had these little wagons, but we had so much stuff we're carrying, and it's all necessary. You got, you know, you got a survival bag you're taking with you per person. You got your Alcy vest, which carries a ton of gear. So it's an Air Warrior Molly. Uh, we kind of got away from that one about halfway through. That that carried like your uh, survival radio, your first aid kit your tourniquets, your survival type equipment like glow sticks and, you know, string, 550 cord. There's all sorts of stuff that's in these, in the pouches on this thing. Well, we kind of dumbed that down. This this thing got really hot and cumbersome. So we dumbed that down to what we call the bat belt. We wore a belt and we put all these pouches on the belt. And you had not only that, but you had, 30 round mags on you had four, four to seven of these 30 round mags. That's a lot of weight. 210 rounds is a lot of weight. Um, so all this stuff was on its best along with your M9 and that prick radio that, uh, the RC 112, I think is what it was. So it was a lot of weight. So we started distributing that around on a belt, which made it a whole lot less pain on our back. And it was, it kind of offered a lumbar support too. Because uh, it sat in a small, some of the equipment sat in small as back, and this, it was a, a nice, comfortable way to sit in the cockpit for a good four and a half, five hours, you know. Beyond that, we had mission packs that had to be secured into the aircraft because of you know, classified material being in it. M4s, uh, we carried long M4s that were strapped to the, to the glare shield just above uh, the dash there and underneath the windscreen. Yeah, and that was interesting, actually, because I, I tried to work out where that was, but then I saw a photo later on. So, yeah, if, if, if you're seeing, imagine seeing there in the seat and you've got the, um, yeah, the instruments in the glare shield, and yeah, it basically, it was like a, a canvas bag or it was some kind of um, rack where the M4 would sit across 
the um, the front of the glare shield. Yeah, on top there, right on top of the glare shield, we had these pouches made that were specifically for smoke grenades and M4 magazines. I think there were six M4 magazines and two smoke grenades, one on each end. And then additional to that, we we would hang uh, smoke grenades on the door jams on, on either side by their paddles in holes that were in the airframe. Because you know, depending on the mission, you might use several in, in a mission. So, uh, which you could pick up in the park. Most of the fuel points had additional smoke grenades in case you need to pick some more up. But uh, marking, marking vehicles, uh, marking LGs, marking targets, that kind of thing. That's what we use the smoke grenades for. But in a situation where you were firing your M4 from the cockpit, you really didn't want to be using your ammunition that you had for your evasion if, if you were in a downed aircraft scenario. So we had additional magazines in that pouch on the glare screen specifically for the mission. And it's got to be unique. I'll, I'll come back to the M4 because, um, yeah, firing from the cockpit. But I'll quickly come back to that. Uh, did you have um, knee boards? Uh, what sort of helmets did you guys carry? Did you have uh, armored vests, like a front and back plate? What did you have in, in terms of that? We had a, you know, that aircraft has a, a protective button, uh, bottom plate, and a back plate. So we normally wore only the chest plate. And it was basically a ceramic chest plate that slid into a sleeve on a uh, armored vest, which the, the vests were pretty comfortable. They were heavy, they were hot, but they were comfortable and they were well worth their weight to go. So, yeah, that's, we did have exactly that. Now, when we went to the when we went to the bat belt configuration, we took off our Molly vest or reduced the vest to only uh, our in, our M9s with a with a few magazines for for the M9 and the radio, which made it much lighter. Uh, much easier to work with. And uh, what else was it you asked me? Uh, helmets? Did you have a, a knee board? Did you have a, a Gentex or a... We did. We used, it was a Gentex uh, 56P and then uh, HGU 56P. And then the knee boards were kind of up to the pilots. They could use whatever they wanted. They didn't have to have one. You always need one. As a scout pilot, uh, you'd be crazy not to carry a knee board. Uh, but I, mine, was kind of a smaller configuration outside of an iPad mini. And I, you know, I have it strapped on my leg, depending on which side I'm on. I may have it strapped on my left leg or right. And I'm flying right or left seat. Uh, your right seat's your primary pilot in this aircraft. Left seat's mainly observation and working with ground teams. He's doing, you know, mission tasks using the, in the nest, talking to the ground commander, that kind of thing. So he's doing most of the riding. Sure. All right, let's go back to the M4 because, and again, reading, I have this picture of, you know, this, this Kyra kicking around the battlefield with uh, Hellfires, you know, Rockets 50 Cal, and then the uh, one of the crew members, you know, shooting out the door with, her, with an M4. It's, uh, it seems like a pretty unique setup. How, and I, I know, I, I can't remember if you actually, in the book, if you actually talk about shooting, I remember you, I think you had to cite something, but how often were crews uh, shooting out the door at targets with, a, with an M4? Depending on where what your mission area was, it was different. Uh, for me, it wasn't nearly as often as our sub troop that was operating out of Missoula. You know, they, they found themselves in situations a lot more times than I did where they were using the M4 out the door. 
there were a few times when we we trailed squirters coming out of a a village or something we're trying to pin down and keep them in one place so we can roll them up that you can you know you use your m4 to do that and it's it's more of an escalation of course you really unless they're just doing something extremely threatening you really want to you really want to capture those guys because you want the intelligence from them uh you want to you want to get the get what's in their head so i know a lot of people i think you're just out there killing a bunch of people but you know, it was a rationale of was a war, a lot of war for information, and a lot of information that was collected was valuable. So through all that, and I kind of evolved over to that from this M4 thing, but it's really used as an escalation of force, as you can tell in that one story in my book where the squadron commander uh, used it several times to try to stop a vehicle before you know the ultimate decision to you know to shoot the guy. You know, so that was a tactic that we could use it wasn't preferred you know if i had a very serious threat i sure don't want to be close enough to the guy that i'm shooting with my m4 yeah absolutely is there something you, you train for like do you actually either in the states or in training do you actually do any range shooting with an m4 or is it just something you you, you just pull out as you're in theater we did we had a we had a range training event on it it's there you know the, the biggest part of the training had more to do with the safety uh, of the use in the helicopter. Where is the brass go to get in the pedals? Where does the um, where do you not point the weapon? <laughs> Make sure that you announce when you're coming off of safe to fire. Don't have it pointed in the rotor system because it's pretty easy when you're flying the Kiowa. You know we're bending and turning that thing pretty good. So if this guy's out the door, he's focused on his target. If you if you crank that thing over to the left while he's firing at a target, he could very easily shoot right through the disc, the rotor disc. So, you know, it's things like that and crew coordination, CRM in the cockpit. Hey, I'm going to have a hard left bank here. So he knows to stop firing before, you know, he makes that uh, last shot. But, yes, they had a very regimented training process, and it was fun. It was a, it was a very good time. I think the whole training runs probably didn't take more than a couple of hours and you can you'd, you'd be surprised with the eotech site how accurate you can put rounds on target uh with an m4 from you know a reasonable distance all right i'm just going to quickly fire a couple of things here at you and just looking at time so you, there's one stage you have to actually drop off um, soccer balls and crayons and things like that so where did you fit that in, in the in the copy is that something you take with you fairly frequently or is that just a, a one-off type deal we probably did that I don't know, maybe eight or 10 times during the deployment. And we find folks that uh, had an abundance of product that they wanted us to distribute or they would send us, you know, we, we would by chance send an email. Somebody would send an email to Rawlings or somebody and say, hey, you know, can you send us X number of uh, soccer balls? And they would send them to us deflated because you can get a ton of them in a box deflated, you know. And then we would inflate them and then pick them out and, and throw them out to the kids or stuffed animals or, you know, whatever it was that they would, would give us something that we could safely drop from the cockpit. We would do it. And, you know, it really, it really helped in the area. The locals that we gave those to loved us. Um, so we could kind of tell when we flew the area and how they were acting if there were bad people in that area. That these guys loved us and we knew it 
So if they weren't waving and hollering and yelling, we came over, we knew something was going on, you know, so it would kind of key us up to do a little more recon or maybe keep going and come back and maybe observe from a distance and see what's going on. Yes, we did some time in Solomon Islands, definitely a different situation, but we talked about getting soccer balls and uh, I don't think we ended up getting it, but, you know, again, you'd land somewhere and wherever you landed, there'd be a bunch of kids would disappear uh, from out of the trees and, and come sit underneath the, the, the helicopter in the shade. And, uh, yeah, sometimes they'd have a soccer ball and we'd drop our gear and go play with them. But, uh, yeah, we would have been their absolute heroes if we had turned up places with um, with soccer balls. Uh, so, yeah, I can definitely see how that works. Yeah. Okay, so quickly, other bits and pieces. Um, the knife line with the zero alume, like, how is that? It would be like finding your way through, you know, with finger touch. <laughs> that was challenging. That was challenging. And there's, there were some missions that uh, we performed that are not in the book that I wish I had added to the book, but we did a, a border insertion along the Syrian border one night, and it was absolutely zero alum. I mean, it was zero. There's no lights in that northwestern corner of Iraq. So we're flying out of there now. There's lights in Syria, but when you turn back and you're, you know, facing into Iraq, uh, there is absolutely no light in. Uh, it's tough because there's no horizon. So, you know, we know the legal limits, um, but we also had to get the mission done. So at times we were flying instruments and we just did what it took to get the mission completed, you know, within reason. And one of those missions, it was kind of, it was kind of cool because we're right on the border. I mean, we were inside Iraq, but right on the border firing uh, infrared alum rockets for a Blackhawk to come in or two Blackhawks to come in and insert a special team along the border. And this is where it's critical for your briefing to go exactly as planned because you've got uh, the timing of the rockets firing. You've got IR loom burning and coming down. And now you've got a Blackhawk coming in to land and drop and, and leave before that rocket gets to the ground, before that burning element hits the ground. So, you know, so it's not a hazard to that aircraft. So we did that a few times. That was pretty exciting. But the zero loom, that's probably when it was the most challenging. The other most challenging or another challenging time was in Kuwait. We did our dust landings. Once we get to Kuwait, they always have you go out and practice these dust landings. In my particular iteration, which... They're only spread out over a few days, so I'm sure everybody's just as bad, but you get out there. There is no points of reference. You're looking you're looking for a blade of grass. I would have been happy with a blade of grass. You get out there, you're doing night energy, dust landing. I say dust, it's more like powder. It's worse than a rack. It's Kuwait. It's nothing but powder. Uh, so you land, it's completely uh, dusted out. It's in the cockpit. It's in your nose. It's in your mouth. I mean, it's everywhere. Your eyes are, you know, it's like you've got sandpaper in your eyes and you're trying to do all that and keep the <laughs> keep the aircraft steady and stable uh, and upright all at the same time. That was, uh, to date, the most challenging landing I've done. Well, yeah, and no, I never haven't had that bad dust. Yeah, we've always had a little reference and, you know, we just don't get dust like that in Northern Australia. But I, I know it's a huge focus for um, research and things like that, just given the amount of, 
helicopter yeah. being wrapped up in, yeah. in those theaters. And and look from your book, I get a, a very strong impression. You, you're definitely not a fan of Q8. That uh, if you could never go back to Q8 in your life, you'd be you, <laughs> you, you would be uh, disappointed. Well, you would be right. I don't know. I said this a few times in there. Why does anybody live here? I, I can't understand it. But yeah, it's it's definitely not a place that I would want to be uh, for certain. It's very hot. It's very dry. The only thing it's got going for it is it's near uh, it's near the coast. It's on the water. <laughs> so. Cool. All right. There's two more things. We'll finish them up, and because uh, you've got a fairly unique perspective on some of these things. But uh, American Sniper. I take it you've seen the the movie um, recently. You know, I I have not watched it yet. Oh, okay. I have the book and the movie, and I've got a friend of mine that I want to watch it with. Uh, I've waited uh, so that we can watch that together, and I have not seen it, but I've got a lot of friends that have seen it, love it. And uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching it. I almost went and watched it twice, uh, but I promised him I wouldn't. So I'm kind of waiting on it. Uh, okay, excellent. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it, that one with it because yeah, we really, I was I was actually really interested to uh, yeah get your feedback on it because again, and, and towards the end of the book, you mentioned a bit of the um, PTSD uh, that you know sort of folks have coming back and, and talking that. And even just you know leaving leaving a flying job in the military to go and do anything else, it's you know it's tough as well because it's such a an awesome job. And even there's elements of it where you're doing it that sort of frustrate you and things. But um, you get out and you realise like how much fun it actually was. So and doubling on top of that, you know, war type type stuff. So yeah, it's uh, a whole another field there. I can let me touch on that for a minute because I you know there's a lot of folks that, that think PTSD is one thing. It's really not. You know, you've got these guys, you're you're training people to go out and do the ultimate task, the ultimate mission. And after flying the things that you've flown and done the missions that you've done, you're coming back to a world that never knows and can't understand that unless they've been there. Now, you know, for me, exiting the military, there's a couple of things that really bother me. Number one is you're leaving your team. You know, you're leaving those guys that you love and you grew to love them like family. Now you're coming away from that. So you're a little, you know, I kind of felt guilty about that in a way. You know, should I have stayed and spent more time there? Now I'm an experienced guy. I'm, I'm going to be replaced by a guy that's probably fresh out of high school or uh, fresh out of flight school and uh, maybe out of high school, you know, that who knows, you know, what level of training he's going to soak up and is he going to be as effective as what I would have been and who loses her life because he wasn't, you know, so there's a little bit of guilt there in the transition to get back into uh civilian world. You're never going to do another job like that. You know, so you realize you, you've seen your pinnacle. And so the sooner that you come to grips with that and you take that to heart and you let that not bother you anymore, the better you'll do. But, you know, I went through a lot of things through even the death of my father through that second deployment. So uh, there's a lot of things for me to process when I got back where I really couldn't think about it at the time. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I think people don't think of when you when you say PTSD. It's not just um, the one thing that they're thinking of. It's a lot of things put together, how it affects your family, how you affect your family coming back uh, from that environment. 
and trying to reintegrate to a normal life. Yeah, and that's why, um, you know, again, I think American Sniper, it's a great movie by itself, but uh, it also makes that conversation about those sorts of things, uh, you know, it sort of brings it up and, and allows people to actually talk about it too. So, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> you have to let me know what you think after you see the movie. Uh, you're flying uh, in the EMS role at the moment, is that right? Where, where are you currently working out of? Yeah, currently I am in Texas, and I took an EMS job out of the military love that job though you know you, you i kind of talked about going for overnight and taking lives saving lives and flying ems is very rewarding i think you had to transition to a fine job where it was as rewarding as as what i did in the military this would probably be it because you're you're that flight angel coming out to uh, pick somebody up off the road and in the middle of the night when no one else will uh, the transition was good after a couple of years i took a position a promotion position with the company, and now I'm a regional manager for that same company, uh, managing uh, 10 EMS bases across Texas and New Mexico. So it's a little, little less physically demanding now. I still fly, I uh, quarterly stay current, but I'm not out on the line flying all the time now. But it's enjoyable. Fantastic. All right, do you want to give your book a, a quick plug and let folks know um, how they can find it? And, uh, and again, I recommend if you've been listening to this interview, it's, uh, you know, again, it's another really good insight into the background of some of the things we've been talking about. Uh, so, yeah, where can folks grab a copy of the book? Okay. So, first off, you can go to the website. It's blackdeath23.com. Uh, all, all one word, no spaces. You can find links to it there. Uh, you can buy them directly from me signed if you want you can also go to amazon do a search for it uh, amazon you can get it on kindle you can get it on uh, audio now as of a few weeks ago it's out then audiobooks out and i'll be doing a, a promotional giveaway soon as soon as audible.com gets their uh, issue fixed on their website i'll i'll put that out probably on twitter as well as facebook so look for that and then you can get it in paper copy on Amazon as well. Fantastic. All right, well, let's wrap it up there um, time-wise. So Robert Mills, author of Black Death 23, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Nick. You can find some photos of Robert and the Coral Warriors over on their website under today's episode. Also include a link to the book and Robert's website. This episode was sponsored by trainwellpilots.com. If it's your job to look after the marketing in the aviation company or you just want to fly more hours and your marketing person needs some help, then you'll find some resources to help out over at trainmorepilots.com. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. It's episode 22. You can find out or you can listen to all the other episodes on iTunes. If you're new to the show, go back and check those out. If you're into reading, then go grab the list of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners over at rotarywingshow.com. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Have a, a great week. Hope you get a bunch of flying in and catch you in the next episode. Bye.